There was an ancient idea whispered in the halls of prophetic voices centuries ago. This idea reverberated around corridors of all kinds of religions and shot through the table of time. Though it rested neatly in the first century Hebrew mindset. The idea was simple, really. Quite straightforward, if you think about it. If there would be a man to come and liberate humanity from the evil set upon it by the snake in the garden, if he were to be truly righteous, a just redeemer of creation, a prophet, a priest, a king, set to resurrect the temple to the first glory of ancient days, defeat the enemy of God, namely death, call people to repentance, suffer, glorify, and perfect what it means to be human, what it means to be the representative of God. Break through the chaos and silence of the world so that all the pitiful arguments would cease and he would reign as the anointed king over all of God's creation, calling all nations and tongues to himself so that every knee would bow. If that were the case, then it would stand to reason, as Isaiah did, that this man would be God incarnate. God with us. Emmanuel. If the snake crusher was to crush the ancient serpent, he himself would need dominion over all creation. He himself would have needed to have been the purpose, the supreme reason for things to be in existence for, and, and he would have needed to have been in the beginning with God because he would have needed to be God. And you see, God was coming into the world as a light. Though, since humanity shrouded in darkness, we did not want to see that light. He would not be known by his own people. Since the beginning, no one had ever seen God. Until Jesus of Nazareth came preaching in a small Galilean countryside. Now, you might be thinking, can anything good come from Nazareth? And if so, you're in good company. But listen closely, and I will tell you a tale of wonders and joy that you would do well to hear. You see, it all started with a public declaration that this Jesus of Nazareth was the righteous, just, Son of God, all that Adam could not be. Then three days after this Jesus was baptized and started his public ministry, he was at a wedding feast in Cana. During this feast, they ran out of wine, go figure. And this Jesus demonstrated his control over the created order when he turned these, these massive jugs of water into the purest wine in Galilee. But several months later, Jesus finds himself in Jerusalem. It was during Passover, and in the temple sat these money-obsessed, greedy salesmen who, who would trade you righteousness for the right price. 
rightly angered, and speaking the words of God on behalf of God. This Jesus drives out the thieves who rob people of their righteousness. John paints him as this prophet, to be sure. But when he claims that he will construct a temple in three days with more glory than the one that stands now, whispers begin to blow through the crowd. Like in the ancient days. Who is this man? They ask. Who is this man that will build a temple greater than Moses or Solomon? Well, the answer comes in the next chapter, when a leader of the Jewish sect of the Pharisees awakens Jesus in the night, and he asks him a question. His name is Nicodemus, and he tells Jesus that he knows that he is from God... But how is Nicodemus going to believe him? Jesus says that God loved the world in this way, that he was willing to send his only begotten son into the mire of space and time so that whoever would believe that this kingdom here on earth is come to reign, they would not perish, but have eternal life in that kingdom. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, John says. And although Jesus moves on from this space with no answers, and he heals many and preaches powerfully, it is then when he feeds 5,000 people and declares to them with the cosmic prowess of God himself that he is the bread of life. And whoever should come to him would not hunger, and those who believe in him would not thirst. It is then that we see that this man may just be more than a military conqueror. For no one claims to be the great I am, let alone the bread of life like that which was sent from heaven in the wilderness years of Numbers. But greater things than these will you see, we are reminded. Suddenly, a woman is thrown down at Jesus' feet, caught in adultery, and in her heart and in her body she has sinned, but she has fallen at the feet of the one who believes he is the great high priest. The priest, you would remember, being those that lead people into and out of the presence of God and shine like radiant diamonds. It is here where he forgives the sins of this woman's iniquity. And it is here where Jesus claims to be the light of the world. I am the light of the world, he said. The true light. The true radiant priest. And in him, there is no darkness or shadow due to change. The religious leaders are furious. They begin to call him demon-possessed, a blasphemer among blasphemers. Who is this man to claim that he's greater than, than Abraham? But Jesus says that before Abraham existed, he was the great I am, everlasting to everlasting. He says he was in the world before Abraham. He is preeminent over Abraham. Well, 
This goes about as well as you'd think. And they try to kill him. Jesus, however, slips away and having compassion on the crowds, begins to heal and minister to all that believe in his name. John here then claims that Jesus, this Jesus from Nazareth, is the good shepherd. Unlike the evil shepherds that were prophesied by Ezekiel who would lead the nation of Israel, Jesus is the one who will heal and care for the flock. Jesus is the one who has compassion to love them back to their God-given humanity. You see, so far, John has painted Jesus outrightly as the righteous, just, redeemer of creation that has come as a prophet, a priest, a king, the architect of a new and better temple. He has broken through the chaos and shown us what it means to be human, loving people with this intense passion, so much so that they are born into new life by his light. But is Jesus the warrior that we expect him to be? Will Jesus conquer the enemies of God? Will he overthrow Rome or some deeper, more sinister force? Will he crush the head of the snake? And when his good friend Lazarus suddenly dies, hope actually begins to rise in our chest. As the man of God, the Son of God, deeply moved, comes to the tomb and cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died steps out of the tomb, resurrected. Before, when Elisha needed to raise someone from the dead, he had to perform incantations and rituals for hours upon hours, but this Jesus, whose will is perfectly aligned to the Father's, just speaks and it is so. We see that Elijah prepared the way for the Messiah, just as Elijah had prepared the way for Elisha. Elijah prepared the way for the one who would defeat death. Elisha is here, we would say, but no, one greater than Elisha, one who needs only speak and creation bends to his will. And here begins the plot to kill Jesus of Nazareth. For you see, many Jews were there at the tomb. Many ran to tell the Pharisees what had happened, where the high priest Caiaphas then prophesies that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who scattered abroad. And so, the fate of Jesus of Nazareth is set. When John chapter 12 begins, it would appear that we move forward in time, at least some, depending on how you read it. For the last 10 chapters or so, John deals entirely within one week, the week of Passover that leads to this fateful and final day for our hero. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, the humble king of Zechariah and led in procession to an upper room where the Passover feast is prepared and eaten. But Jesus seems to mess up all the words of the ancient tradition. 
mess up, or complete. He claims that he is the Passover lamb. He claims that his body is what is broken for the forgiveness of sins. His blood is spilled for the communion of his people. And he cries out that whoever would believe in him believes in God. And whoever sees him sees God. Whoever hears him hears the very words of God. And falling to his knees, he begins to wash the feet of his students. The good shepherd This is the way, he claims. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He claims that he is the Father and the Father is within him. And whoever would abide in him abides in the Father and the Father in him. For he claims that he is the true vine. I am the vine. And thus ends the seven I am's that John has structured his book around. Because it is here, here, where the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the King, the Prophet, the Priest, is captured in a hazy olive grove and taken to his death. Jesus claimed that among his disciples was one who would betray him. But little did we know that 11 of the 12 disciples would betray him. They all scatter and flee and deny his very being. All of them, except the one writing this very account. (laughs) But Jesus is delivered over and crucified. The suffering of man can be keenly felt in the lamentations of the Psalms. But the suffering of the perfected man will never be comprehended by any human being. For not only was this man betrayed by his friends and family, brutally tortured and then hung on a cross, but the wrath that had been billowing on the horizon of our prophet's lips came crashing down in a single instance onto the shoulders of one Jesus from Nazareth. All those chapters we dug through in Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations where where God's wrath was to be fulfilled came to its conclusion on the heart of one man. The man who this entire time claimed to have perfect unity with God. The man who claimed to forgive all sins and unrighteousness. The man who said he would crush the head of the snake. The man who had said it was him who had been foretold since the beginning. That is the man who said, It is finished. And he breathed his last. And the wave of God's plan finally crashed upon the shores of time as Jesus the Christ gave up his life and hung on a cross to ransom the heart of sinful men. And it is here where Jesus is taken down from the cross and buried in a tomb. It was the first light of a new day, and the sun had risen to crest the green boughs of the orchard. 
Mist still hung close to the ground, no doubt, as we, the reader, are taken back to a garden on the first day of a new creation. And standing there in the midst of this garden, where a mist had gone out to water the whole face of the earth, stood the gardener himself, John writes. The gardener. <laughs> Mary Magdalene ran back and told the other disciples, Jesus has risen. He has risen indeed. He has made death a laughingstock, established the work of our hands, defeated the ancient serpent, and rose to life on the third day as was prophesied in the Old Testament. But Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples in this way. When Peter had resigned to go back to fishing, Jesus appears to them far out on the shore. And when Peter sees the figure of the man, he throws his cloak on, jumps into the water, presumably to hide behind the boat. <laughs> For he knew, he knows, that he denied the true Messiah. And when Peter finally gets to the shore, he, no doubt, has a hard time looking Jesus in the eye. Jesus says to Peter, Do you love me unconditionally? And Peter responds, Well, you know, I, I love you as a friend. Jesus says to him again, but do you love me unconditionally? And Peter responds again, well, just as a friend. And finally, Jesus comes down to Peter's level, meets him where he's at, and says, okay, do you love me as a friend? And Peter becomes grieved because Jesus had met him where he was at. And as the book of John fades out, as we drift slowly away from its profound story of redemption and creation, we begin to ask ourselves, where does this leave us? If the story of the Messiah is coming to its close, what do we do? And so Jesus looks at Peter and he says three times, feed my sheep. This episode might be longer than I anticipated. Oop. <laughs> That's all right. I actually really love the Gospel of John. You know, it was the first Gospel I ever read, as I'm sure was the case for many of you. 
Pastors often recommend new believers to dive right into the Gospel of John because, you know, it's not as steeped in the Old Testament allusions as Matthew, it's not as matter-of-fact as Mark, it's not as dense as Luke, but it has all the elements of those things. And the longer you read the book, the more you see its beautiful complexity. The Gospel was written as the last Gospel among the four, and it stands to fill in the gaps that the first three might have missed, or just excluded. As John himself says to close out his book, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. It was written a few decades after the first three Gospels, and so John is also trying to push back on some cultural things that would have come up in his day. One of those things is called Gnosticism. We've talked a little bit about that. It means hidden knowledge. It was this real heady, really abstract way of thinking, new agey. It basically said that the way to salvation was to attain this kind of nirvanic state of enlightenment, to, to, uh, to attain this hidden knowledge, and it completely denied ever needing Jesus Christ as a savior. Another heresy John was pushing back against was this idea called asceticism. It's a big word. It basically means that everything in the flesh, or everything physical, is bad. It needs to be punished. It needs to be put away. Everything non-physical is good. And so John is actually saying, well, actually, Jesus came as this flesh being to die for flesh people and interacted with them and was finally attuned to being human. And so that's why you get a ton of the really heady knowledge stuff at the beginning of John, at the beginning with the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then the Word, the light becomes man. And then John puts special emphasis throughout his entire gospel on the, the divine becoming human, on, on, the, on the human aspects of Jesus. And it's also in John where Thomas puts his finger in, in Jesus' side. And it's also in the Gospel of John where Jesus makes uh, the disciples fish to eat at the end of his gospel. <laughs> There's no more human thing to do than to eat fish. So these two heresies, Gnosticism and Asceticism, uh, they came into contact with one another, but these aren't some ancient ideas. It's kind of funny, actually, that John writes his entire gospel to push back on these ideas, and you can still see them in a lot of churches. They may be more widely considered cults now, but you know, you can still see these ideas pop up from time and time again. Anyone who denies the flesh is, is committing asceticism. Anyone who claims that they have this hidden knowledge is committing Gnosticism. And so John is coming in and he's entering into this space and he's trying to prove one thing and one thing only. That Jesus, man-God, is God according to the Old Testament prophets. You see, where Matthew ends his genealogy with Abraham, making his story this Jewish story, Luke ends his genealogy with Adam, making his story this human story, John starts off the story of Jesus by saying he was the uncreated cause in the beginning, and he was in the beginning with the God of creation, making his story a cosmic story. His story involves the redemption of the entire created order. So it's no surprise then that John would structure his entire narrative around these seven I am statements of Jesus. 
And by the way, this isn't some conspiracy theory stuff. I mean, people have done real scholarly research to conclude that, that John really intentionally places the name of God, I am, in these key locations so that the reader will pick up on them. And yeah, it's the exact same phrase that the Septuagint uses in Exodus 3.14. The, the Septuagint being the Greek rendition of the Old Testament. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the open door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, I am the vine. The name that was hidden from the people of God and revealed to Moses is the name that had been hidden from this unbelieving generation and revealed to them in the person of Jesus. Which is why John's gospel continually confronts the reader and the audience with this question of belief. Do you believe that Jesus and God are one? Do you believe that he is the propitiation for your sins? And answers to this will vary widely. But John points out that the unity, the glory, the love, the mission, the knowledge that the Father has with Jesus the Son is then imprinted on the Christian through Christ. Let me say that again. The unity, glory, love, mission, and knowledge that the Father has with Jesus the Son is then imprinted on the Christian through Christ. This is crucial. Because by the end of John, we need to be asking this one Central question. We've read the entirety of the Old Testament, all four Gospels, looking out for this one central main character, the snake crusher, and now that he has come, died, resurrected, and ascended, we have to ask, what now? Is the biblical epic closed? Has it finished? Is that what Jesus meant on the cross? It is finished, that, that the whole narrative has come to an end. Has the light of the world been extinguished? What do we do if grace is real and everyone who believes in Christ is forgiven of their sins? What do we do? Where does that leave us? Well, let me read to you what John says as Jesus is praying. As you have sent me into the world... So I have sent them into the world. And when we turn the page to the book of Acts, we have a whole new universe to explore. This was Bible Unbound. We'll see you next week.